for where we are in Genesis right now, we have this place where we're in transition, right? From the story of Jacob to the story of Joseph. Um, and, and there's only one section left in that transition, and then we go into the story of Joseph. Um, and so in, in my mind, the way I've broken up the passages and everything like that, we have one sermon left before we go into Joseph. Now, but typically as a church, we, we usually spend our, our December um, in the Christmas text, and we stay there. And, and so um, uh, I don't want to start Joseph and then take a break for Christmas and then pick him up again. So um, today um, I'm going to do something for Thanksgiving a little bit. Next week we're going to wrap up our section on Jacob, and then we're going to move into Christmas, all right? So today what I want you to do is open up your Bibles to Luke 7. And this is the story of Christ and his ministry. And, um, and this is a particular episode where Christ has um, been invited by a particular Pharisee. This guy's name is Simon. We don't get that in the early part of the text. We get that later on as the story unfolds. And Christ has been invited to the house of Simon um, uh, to recline at the table, the text says. So let's read the first part of the passage. Um, verse 36 through um, 39, um, Luke 7, and, and we'll go from there, all right? Now, one of the Pharisees was requesting him, Jesus, to dine with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table of the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with her hair, with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. And when the Pharisee who had invited Christ saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is touching him and that she is a sinner. So, as you know, the Pharisees, they were the official keepers of the law at the time in Israel. They were the experts in the law. You know, there was usually no one who kept the law better than them, and they, pri- they prided themselves in doing that. Um, and not only that, but though they also were self-appointed judges of all the others around them. And so the way that you determine spirituality was by the way you kept the law. And the Pharisees felt like they kept the law better than all others, and they were evaluating how others kept the law. And so they were not the kind of people you wanted to hang out with. It's kind of like your mother always telling you, take your elbow off the table, take your elbow off the table, take your elbow off the table. The Pharisees were the people always telling everyone else to take your elbow off the table all the time. So here we have in the passage that this particular Pharisee had invited Christ to his home. Now, if you, if you know the Gospels, and if you've done any reading in it, you know, you know that the Pharisees and Jesus had an ongoing sparring match. And that most interactions between the Pharisees and the Jesus were always more about the Pharisees trying to set a trap for Jesus and catch him in some kind of error, error doctrinal error or something else, so that they could... Um, bring a case against him. It was very rare in Scripture when there was ever a Pharisee who actually came to the Lord with, with a genuine question, with a genuine interaction. You know, first of all, the very first one that comes to mind would be Nicodemus when he came to the Lord in the secret of the night, you know, 
and he asked the Lord, like, you know, you're talking about being born again. How does that happen? You know, and Jesus says, aren't you a Pharisee? Aren't you a keeper of the law? And you're asking me? You know. So here we have a Pharisee who has invited Christ in his home. And isn't it interesting, though? I mean, I have to be honest. Like, if you feel like you have people who are always after you, you know, for me, I'm always kind of like a little bit like this, you know, with those people. I'm kind of like, I know that this is not safe. I know that this interaction and this invitation is not a genuine invitation toward friendship or relationship. There's other agendas at play here, and those agendas are not in my favor. And yet we see Jesus continually entering into those interactions, continually entering into those relationships. And so here he, he's done that again. He enters into the house and he reclines at the table. Now, when, that, when you think about that, and you've probably seen some paintings. I'd sort of say a photograph. That'd be weird, wouldn't it? Um, you've seen some paintings. And, and, um, and the Jews had adapted a Roman style of, of dining. And it would be like there would be three like long couches like this with an open area for servants to come in and take care of serving the guests. And they would come to those couches and they would, in essence, recline in such a way that they were leaning on their elbow, you know, recline like that with their legs behind them. Now, I would love to be able to do that, but I wouldn't be able to get off the ground today. So I won't do that. You have to just use your imagination. And so they were leaning on an elbow with their legs behind them. And so, um, and what has, what this picture presents is that this oh and the other thing you're trying to warm up you're you're wondering perhaps how did this woman come into this man's home well apparently the the custom was that um when someone of any recognition was in the area people would flock um to that home or to that synagogue or wherever this person may be and especially you think about if it was in a small village that might especially be true you know that there's not many people who come through our town right and so here's a guy, he's a prophet, we hear, we hear he heals people, and um, he's having dinner over at Simon's house, let's go over and see if he's going to do anything, right? And, and, and it was kind of an open um, environment. There's a story in, in Jewish literature about a, a beggar who went to a rich man's home, and he waits at the door, he waits there in the, in the area right there, even in the entry to the home, in hopes of getting some crumbs in hopes of getting food. And so it was a common thing. So this woman comes to the house, but she doesn't, she doesn't wait at the door. She doesn't wait outside. She doesn't even wait, you know, someplace off to the side. She steps right into the middle of this. Now, you, I think the best way to try and, and capture this story is to really use your imagination, where you have somebody that you don't really know who he is or what he's about. And many people think he's a prophet. And many people have heard that he heals people. And he's come to your town. And he's having dinner, apparently, at a local, one of the Pharisees' homes. And I don't know how many people might have been sitting around there having this meal, sharing this, this food together or not. But they're there... And, and obviously the prophet is someone who you'd consider a holy man. And the Pharisee is obviously a rule keeper. And in walks a woman that the village knows as a sinner. And she was a hooker. 
She was a harlot, a whore. And she walks into the room. And she probably sucked all the air out of the room. But she just doesn't walk in and pause waiting to get food or something. She walks in. And as you read the text there, she walks into the Lord. And standing behind him, verse 38, at his feet, weeping. Now remember, the way he's reclining, his feet are behind him. His feet are probably bent like this, and his feet are behind him. And she comes in behind him, and she begins to weep. The word there that's meant for weep actually means like rain. It means a very intense weeping. And so there she is, weeping at his feet, wetting them with her own tears. And then with her hair, she's wiping her feet, his feet, and kissing them. And then she takes that vial of perfume and she breaks it open and pours it. Now, you know, the perfume apparently was of some value and so she was a woman who had some means. She had a profession and she was able to afford that. And she does this for the Lord. Let's read, let's read the response now going forward in the next passage. Verse 40. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. And here goes the Lord, the master instructor, the master teacher. And here we go again into a story. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owned 500 denarii and the other 50. That would be, it would be more like this if you want to get into some American money. One owed $50,000 and the other owed 500, 5,000. 50,000, 5,000. And when they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. Which of them, therefore, will love him more? And Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. And turning toward the woman, he said to Simon. Now, just in your mind's eye, picture that. He's just been sitting there, and he says to Simon, he's talking to him. And then he continues to talk to Simon, but he diverts all the attention in the room to the woman by looking at her. And he says, turning to the woman, he said to Simon, you see, this woman... I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, but she since the time I came in, has ce- not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. And for this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven." For she loved much, but her but he who is forgiven is forgiven, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins have been forgiven. And to those who were reclining at the table with him, they began to say to themselves, Who is this man who even forgives sin? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. 
go in peace. It's interesting there where it talks about kissing the Lord, that that same phrase, those same words, the same intention there is exactly what it's the, exactly the word and phrase that's used for the father who welcomes home the prodigal. Isn't that interesting? It's, it's, um, it, it conveys this um, gratefulness, this adoring, um, forlorn love, perhaps, where the father had been missing the son and he welcomed him back with kisses, it says. And it says it's the same way that she has been kissing the Lord's feet. Like one who has lost something and now they have found it, perhaps. Here he points out, and, and you might be familiar with some of the customs in, uh, in this culture, that you know they, they, they travel by foot. And they wore sandals, and they're traveling by, by foot among dusty roads and dusty roads that animals are traveling. So there's, you know, animals leave things on the road as they travel as well. And so um, everyone is traveling through this. And when their feet are getting soiled and dirty, and when they come into the home, it was very customary to the first thing was to wash their feet. And he points out, Simon, you didn't do that for me. You, a man of means, you, a man who keeps the law, and yet here's this woman of no means, really, of not a law keeper, and she has not washed my feet with a towel that she'll throw away. She's washed them with her tears and with her hair. Great, great um, uh, symbolism, great, great expression of a very intimate a very intimate expression of love and adoration. Is it not? Is it not? And so everything that Simon didn't do for the Lord, this woman more than makes up for. She continues to honor the master by wiping his feet, by anointing him with oil, And in effect, what she's done in her actions, she highlights the dishonor of the Pharisee to the Lord. Everything he hasn't done, she's done, and she's done it more. But she goes even further by kissing his feet. And then she puts the perfume on him. And notice that Simon never stops what's happening. I would think that perhaps he's waiting for something in all this for the opportunity to make an accusation. He's waiting for the Lord to make some kind of mistake so he can say, ah, we got you. We got you. But what happens next in these passages here when he unfolds the story about the, the forgiveness of the, of, the, of the denarii and who loves more, What has happened all of a sudden is now all of a sudden Simon, who is waiting for an opportunity to catch the Lord in a mistake, has all of a sudden had the tables turned. And and Simon, who was the hunter, has now become the hunted. Simon, who was looking for an opportunity to put the Lord in, in the sights, has now found himself with laser dot right here. 
and he can't get out of it. The Lord, in his own amazing way, has turned the tables and revealed Simon's heart and Simon's sin in a way that is unavoidable and in a way that everyone in the room sees it. You know, it's not that Simon needed less forgiveness. It's that Simon didn't realize he needed any forgiveness. And you know how it is so often when you're in this situation. In my mind, I imagine that this scenario is here and the seats are there and everyone is kind of watching all this play out. And then all of a sudden the Lord picks on Simon and says, you are that man. And everyone else goes, wow, I'm glad he's that man. I don't want to be that man. You know, I'm glad that he didn't point out my sin. Or they're saying like, wow, Simon's really a bad guy. I'm glad I'm not Simon. Have you noticed that that's the way we are? You notice that we, we are always evaluators. We are always, you know, like I, I, I know that there are people who work in fruit markets and the fruit industry and they evaluate the fruit, right? And they size it. And then there's some fruit that they say, well, this fruit is not appropriate. This fruit is not usable. When I, when I was growing up, my dad, before we got in the restaurant business, he was in the fruit market business. And he had fruit markets on the side of the road in California. We lived there for two years. Now, growing up in West Texas, that's what he did. We went to California for two years, and he just had these fruit markets on the side of the road. And, and, then, and then after that, I worked in a fruit market for another guy for a little bit during high school. And it was interesting because there would be fruit that no one would really buy because it had begun to go bad. But you'd put that in a basket, and all those old country gals who knew how to cook, they'd come in and they want the culls, they called it. They wanted the bruised stuff. They wanted the stuff that was just a little bit that, that no one else would buy. Because they knew that stuff, they'd take it home, they'd make jam or jelly, they'd, they'd, they would, they would um, can it, or whatever the case may be. They'd come in and want that stuff. But no one else wanted it. And so here we are. And these Pharisees are fruit assessors. They're assessing the fruit, not only theirs, but everyone else's. And it's interesting that none of us, none of us want to be a Pharisee. And yet it is inherent in our hearts to be just that. It is inherent in our hearts to always be assessing. And the problem with assessing fruit is that um, there is one standard for fruit, and you know, like the perfect fruit, you know what it is. But when we're talking about our lives and assessing our lives, there is one standard of our life. And that standard is the holiness of God. And all of us fall short of that. All of us do. But the thing that we do is we don't really want to do that. We don't really assess ourselves against his standard. We assess ourselves against other people's standards. 
And so I've done this before, and today might not be a good idea, but I'll do it again for illustrative sakes. You know, but what we do is we get like this in a position like this where we go, oh, look at Jack down there. What a dirty sinner he is because I'm way up here. I'm obviously higher than Jack. I'm obviously doing a much better job than Jack, but he's down there. Wow. Poor, poor Jack, poor family. They're all living with a sinner like him, but not me. Look at me up here. I'm doing so much better than him, you know? But the thing is that every time you're up here, there's someone always up there. You see, we don't look up. We only look down and around because if we looked up, we'd find a standard that we have no hope in ever meeting, the standard of God's holiness. And so for us as fruit assessors, we put ourselves in these positions like this. So we're looking down on all the people around us and how bad they are. There's a passage I want you to turn to in 1 Corinthians 6, please. First Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 Paul has two places, at least two places, where he calls out a list of sins. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. And do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators or adulterers or adulterers or effeminate or homosexuals or thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you have been sanctified. You were justified in the name of Jesus Christ, the Spirit of our God. Now, keep your finger there, and let's go to the other, another list that I want us to look at. And that's in 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 through 11. Is that right? Yeah. So we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that the law is not made for righteous men, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. Profane, remember, we studied that with Esau. Profane means one who doesn't take things seriously, doesn't take religious or spiritual things seriously. For the profane, for those who kill their fathers and mothers for murderers, and immoral men, and homosexuals, and kidnappers, and liars, and perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God for which I have been entrusted. Here are these two lists of sins. And just like when you're standing up in a chair and you're scanning the sinfulness of those around you, we take these two lists and we cherry-pick them. We look at them and we'll say, well, this passage doesn't really apply to me. Um, verse 9 says that um, unholy, profane, I'm not, I'm not either of those. Um, it says, kill their mothers and fathers. They died of natural causes. I'm good there. All right. Um, let me see. Uh, immoral men, homosexuals, kidnappers. I've never kidnapped anyone. Um, and yeah, I'm good on this list. But the list hadn't stopped yet, has it? For liars and perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. 
liars and perjurers. Well, that doesn't really apply to me either. Let's go back to this other list, all right? 1 Corinthians 6, 8 through 11. Let's look here. On the contrary, you yourselves are wrong and defraud. And, um, you, on contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. And that, and that you're, on the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud and that your brethren. Verse 9 is where I want to be. I'm sorry. And do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor adulterers, nor effeminate homosexuals, nor thieves. Well, I don't steal things. Nor covetous. Oh, well, that's a problem. Um, drunkards or revilers. That means argumentative, troublemakers. Nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. You, you've noticed that like, when we come into these passages, we look at these passages and we go, well, I have never murdered. I'm not stealing from people. I'm, you know, I'm not fornicating. In other words, I'm not having sex outside of marriage. Adultery, I'm with my, my spouse. I'm not doing... But we, we get down here, and the list is not just like the big sins, is it? The list comes down and just says, are you honest? Are you honest? The list comes down and says, do you make trouble? Do you have a problem with drinking? And in our culture, I think that's more prevalent than many of us would like to admit. You notice there that we probably are more pharisaical than we'd like to admit. But see... Even by what the discussion we're having right now, we're still taking sins and we're still comparing sins to sins. Each of these passages finish the same way. Look at the ending of this passage. For such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. What is the standard in that, in a sense? He didn't say it explicitly, but... What is the standard in that? The standard is God. The other passage is much more explicit to it. In First Timothy, as he wraps up that passage in verse 11, I believe it is here, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God of which I've been entrusted. You see, it's really not about comparing ourselves to one another or comparing ourselves to any kind of list of sins. Really, the comparison, the final judgment is God himself, is his holiness. It's his holiness. That is the final thing. And so we are so often just like, I mean, and I've been struggling with it in the past 24 hours. I've been struggling with a very judgmental spirit about a a particular thing. And I'm not going, why? Why does that happen? Why do they do that? Why aren't they? And then, you know, whatever my thing is, I'm fitting it in, doing this. And yet, the Lord is revealing to me that I'm doing that in other areas. What about you? You know, what about you? When you are thinking about like your own spiritual life, when you're thinking about whether you're really holy, whether you're really spiritual, whether you're really godly, when you're thinking about how thankful you are to God, are you using your standard or God's standard? 
I'm using my standard. And the problem with my standard is it is always skewed toward me. It always favors me. When I read those sins, I always read that list and say, I'm only doing one of those. I'm okay. But by God's standard, my one is as bad as all the rest. My lying or my dishonesty or my disrespect is just like murder. As we enter the Thanksgiving season, you know, we're going to come here on Thursday night and we're going to gather here at 7 p.m. for our Thanksgiving service and we're going to talk about what we're thankful for. And it's so easy for me to say, I'm really grateful for the elders and the way they treat me and the way that they encourage me or challenge me. That's easy. What's hard is for us to have dug deeper into our lives and say, I'm amazed that God still forgives me because I am just like the horror in that story. Or, more insightful might be, I'm amazed that God still forgives me because I'm the Pharisee in that story. I am that Pharisee. Just let you know that. I judge your sin, Dave. Just want you to know that. Sorry, buddy. And I judge my wife's sin and my children's sin and my elder's sin. And I compare myself to all of them and I win every time. But that's not the test, is it? The test is comparing my sin to God's holiness and I fall short every time. But the gratitude, the thankfulness, the weeping of the, 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 the weeping of the tears of gratitude come when I realize how far I fall short of his glory and I still receive his grace and his forgiveness and his love. Day after day after day after day. And in that, that's what compelled that woman to show up and to wipe the Lord's feet with her hair and her tears because she understood how far she was from the standard of God. And the Pharisee didn't because he never looked to the Lord for his standard. He only looked to other people in the room for their standard. When we keep our eyes on the Lord, we realize how far we fall. We realize how much of a gap there is between his holiness and my holiness. And the fact that he still loves us and he still accepts us in and he still wants to use us, that, this woman understood that. And that's what compelled her to such gratitude. We, I don't think we have any murderers in the room, but we do have a lot of people who struggle with pride. I'm not wrong. They're wrong. I don't have to forgive. They need to forgive. They need to ask for forgiveness. Pride. That's the one that's not on the list, but it's the one that kicks all of them off. So today, if you're trying to figure out what you're really guilty of, just stop at pride. Just go there first, and you'll find that you rest there quite easily. And that falls very short of the Father's list. Let's pray. Father, just want to thank you 
that you used this Pharisee for your purposes because you showed me that I am like this Pharisee. You showed me that I am this Pharisee. And so today, Father, I just want to thank you that you love that Pharisee as much as you love that woman. And that if that Pharisee had chosen to repent and that Pharisee had chosen to respond the way she did, you would have gladly accepted it. And you've gladly accepted me. And I'm so grateful. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.